Welcome to It Just So Happened. I'm Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 7th of February. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. It's the city which gave the world Unistubs, Gok Wan, and David Icke. Yes! <laughs> of course, it's Leicester! So we are performing this show in the Leicester Comedy Festival, always an innovative festival, hosting events such as the UK Pun Championships and Silver Stand-Up Competitions, and last year launching the very first UK Kids Comedy Festival. It's now in its 27th year, and this year has over 800 shows taking place in more than 90 venues. Our venue tonight is the King Richard III Centre, a stunning 150-year-old Gothic revival building formerly the Alderman Newton School. It was renovated and opened in July 2014 to tell the story of the search for and discovery of the remains of King Richard III found in the nearby car park in August 2012. And talking of old relics, let me introduce the panel. So we have Alistair Beckett King, Hello. Ben Ennis, Chris Phillips, and Joe Mungovin. So our first guest tonight is Alistair Beckett. Oh, he's looked round. Is Alistair Beckett King? <laughs> Alistair has appeared on the It Just So Happened podcast before at our show in Buxton in July. Alistair was winner of the Leicester Mercury Comedian of the Year 2017. He is also a filmmaker and illustrator, and knows quite a lot about 19th century magicians. Probably because, as a true Renaissance man, Alistair claims to be 500 years old. Over 500 years old. So his latest work in progress show is on later this evening at the Cozy Club at 1945. Uh, so we can all pop yeah, along there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just pop along there if you like, Alistair, after the show. Hope you've written it by now. So over to you, Alistair. Thank you. Ah, well, uh, my subject, uh, I think you struck me as a filmmaker uh, and comedian. I, I actually do quite a bit of animation. And uh, one of the things that uh, I discovered by Richard telling me happened on this day in the year 1940 was that the Disney film Pinocchio was, uh, was what's the word, uh, broadcast, released? Premiered. Premiered, premiered, that's the word. And, uh, what, well, there it is, uh, you know, I think we all know the story of Pinocchio, do I need to tell it? Is, any, is anyone unfamiliar? Has anyone just dropped out of the sky? Has anyone just popped into existence, a, a naive? No, okay, good, uh, I won't tell it then. The, the, Talking about Pinocchio, the temptation is to make a, sort of a cheap, crass reference to Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> I thought that would be a little too on the nose. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 boo now! We're one, <laughs> we're one sentence into this. I mean, if you think it's getting better, oh. Uh, I mean, I think a short, a, the reason I think of Boris Johnson is a short while ago, Boris Johnson's dad, whose name I haven't bothered to research, was on television. <laughs> And, and he said that he didn't think the average Brit could spell Pinocchio. And I, I, at the time, I was furious at the sneering arrogance of Daddy Johnson. Until yesterday, when I tried to Google Pinocchio. And it said, did you mean the actual spelling of Pinocchio? Yes, I did Google it. It's a difficult word to spell, fair enough. 
That's one to Daddy Johnson there. No, in fairness though, the Prime Minister is nothing like Pinocchio. With Pinocchio, what happens is when he, he tells a lie, and then his nose gets longer. Whereas with the Prime Minister, those events happen in the opposite order, and it's not his nose that grows. <laughs> I'm going to let you enjoy that if you choose. <laughs> if you want to sit in silence, I think we're all getting out there. He, he, uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, I'll leave the, the, the caustic satire behind now. The Prime Minister is nothing like Pinocchio. Um, Pinocchio has a conscience. <laughs> Which is uh, one of the most important features of the Disney film is, is the character of Jiminy Cricket. Not, not really in the original text they drew, they drew from. The Jiminy Cricket character is sort of a Walt Disney original. Um, he appears on Internet Movie Database as Jiminy Cricket, but because it's the internet there are many misspellings. He's also there as Jiminy Cricket. And my favourite, Cricket the Insect. <laughs> and yeah, I'm puzzled over that. Who, nobody calls him Cricket the Insect. That's not his name. My Felix the Cat, Cricket the Insect. I, I've now realised that I think it's that to differentiate from Cricket the Sport. Which, <laughs> imagine if Pinocchio's conscience was the sport of cricket. I mentioned that I, uh, I'm an animator, and uh, to, to be sincere for a moment, uh, Pinocchio is an extraordinary film in, in animation terms. Uh, it, it, they, they brought in a great deal of uh, genuinely innovative animation techniques. Uh, it was one of the first films in the Disney uh, catalogue, it was only the, the second Disney feature, but they built 3D models of all of the characters for the, for the, uh, the animators and the, the, the artists to use. They even built a working Pinocchio marionette, which sounds really cool to me. And they continue to use a technique uh, called rotoscoping. Now, I don't know how nerdy we are. Does anybody know what rotoscoping is? Yes, we're getting some nods out. If you're not familiar, I can see some shakings. Uh, it's, think of it as a sort of two-dimensional 1940s version of motion capture. So they would film the actors, film actors acting scenes out, and then the, the illustrators would trace that or use that as a movement guide. So it's cheating, is what I'm saying. What Disney was a terrible cheat. It's very obvious when you see characters like the Blue Fairy or in the previous film, uh, Snow White. You can see they have very naturalistic movement, and the secret is tracing. Um, and that, that's important because of something I'm going to tell you later, but if, if, a quick summary of the plot is that Pinocchio has a series of picarettes, adventures and mishaps in his quest to move from being a puppet into being a real boy. And Disney massively cleaned up the original stories, as he always did, but even so, it remains one of the darkest Disney films. Like, like Dumbo, I don't know what it is about films of this period, but the claim is that he gets totally smashed on whiskey and cigars in one scene, and half of the reviews on the on the internet are just people going, you know that he smokes cigars and gets drunk at one point in the film. It's very hard to imagine that happening in Frozen, is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it says, let it go, just let it go, let it go! Weirdly for a Disney film, he encounters villain after villain, none of whom face any comeuppance for any of the bad things they do. They try to exploit him, they turn him into a donkey, they try and sell him into slavery, which is weird because this is one of the only Disney films of the period that takes an anti-slavery stance. Uh, well, I'm sorry you didn't go with me on that. Is there still any pro-slavery crowds? Look at Disney's Song of the South. Uh, you can't. They don't show it anymore for some reason. Uh, because Walt Disney was, uh, I've just got here, Walt Disney total git. Are we, <laughs> are we all in agreement that Walt Disney was a total, can I say git on the podcast? I already have. Um, he, didn't, he, he didn't credit voice actors, that's one of the things you notice when you watch the film. He, he, even up to the 90s, the Disney film didn't credit the people who did the singing voices for their characters. He wanted it to be all him. Uh, this film features the, the voice talents of um, a, a, a name I think you'll know, Mel Blanc, one of America's
Jericho's a great cartoon voiceover guy, so he's, he's Bugs Bunny, he's, he's everything. This is one of his rare appearances in a Disney film. And he voiced, one, one of America's best voice artists, he voiced Gideon the Cat, a character that never speaks at any point in the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> they cut all of the lines. Mel Brandt, the great voiceover artist, they cut all of his lines, so he's only on the soundtrack whenever the cat hiccups. It's really amazing that that happened. Uh, Geppetto is played by uh, an Austrian actor called Christian Wolf, which sounds to me like a very niche massage. <laughs> I do think it's his name, Christian Wolf. And, and of course, there's nothing wrong with being Austrian. But in 1940, it was a bit suspicious. <laughs> and, well, rumour has it that Christian Wolf was very keen on this Adolf Hitler chap who was very new and popular around about that time and would uh, fit, fit, fit right in with Walt Disney. Uh, he, he would bang on about how great Hitler was and what fantastic things he was doing. And, and the other directors he had to work with, and the animators, were sick of his ranting, so the story goes. Uh, but the legend is that they got their revenge on him. So they were filming one of the scenes where um, Geppetto was spot swallowed by Monstro the Whale. And they had him on a moving platform. So they were filming this in order to rotoscope it. See, I needed to explain what rotoscoping was in order for this anecdote to make sense. Otherwise, you would have said, why were they filming it? It's a cartoon. Because <laughs> they cheated, is the reason. So they, they had him on a movable platform, and because and, and, they were, nobody really liked him, according to legend, what they did was they wobbled him really badly. That's the whole story. And the, <laughs> the story is presented in a sort of, well, we showed him for being a Nazi kind of way. All they did was wobble him. <laughs> That's what they do with Nazis, annoy them slightly. <laughs> That'll show him. Uh, the film lost a million dollars on its release. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was not a hit in 1940. Uh, when it came out in, on, on this very day. But it was critically acclaimed, it, it won Oscars, and it, it regularly appeared on the top lists of best animated films. Um, not everyone agrees. I told you that I had a quick look at reviews. Um, there, are some, there are some serious one-star reviews out there. Um, Jakey Jake says, Masterpiece, just a classic, lovely film. One star. And... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you please, Jakey Jake. <laughs> Like, we've all worked with a Jakey Jake, like, yeah, <laughs> I think it's also possible Jakey Jake doesn't know how the star system makes the system works. Um, Rob, Robbie Lewis, a uh, very harsh review from him, he says, was delivered the wrong DVD, one star. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Walt Disney's fault. <laughs> Lee Eisenberg, two and a half stars from Lee, he's a, he takes some, a very interesting objection to it. He says, Italy. I don't know what he talks about, but I'm going to say Italy looks really idealistic in the movie, but Mussolini's brutal occupation of Libya and Ethiopia calls that into question. Because the film's not set in the 1940s, the film's not set in fascist Italy, it's a very weird criticism. But you know Lee's a weird guy, because the next thing he says is, the treatment of gambling as a moral vice no longer applies since gambling has become an important part of the economy. <laughs> Fair enough, Lee. You, you take what you want from me. <laughs> Paul Parson says, um, it's one thing to have a wooden puppet suddenly become alive, which I think is the best opening line to <laughs> It's one thing to have a wooden puppet suddenly become alive, but it's hardly another for Gui Petto, as he spells it, to expect him to go to school. He then sends the poor puppet off to school alone. Capital letters on a loan. I know, ignoring the fact that in the 1940s people did send their children to school. It's the least unrealistic bit of the film. One star. 
Um, the, one of my favorite review sites is called the Christian Action Project. And they review films, they're evangelical American mad people, and they review films based on whether they're suitable for your evangelical Christian children. No films are suitable for their view. <laughs> Uh, he makes he, he notes that uh, well that he's very unhappy with the blue fairy in the reviewer because it's a, a fairy is of course a satanic creature rather it could have been a blue angel but they've missed an opportunity to to include God in the film and he he concludes by saying the youth of the Pinocchio era are the leaders of our country I'm going to do it in an American accent because he's clearly American the youth of the Pinocchio era are the leaders of our country policies legal systems and society today and what may I ask happened to prayer in school to the Ten Commandments in public places, to Christianity in general. Hasn't Satanism become an official religion today? Maybe this multi-level inference is not as far-fetched as you think. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's just talking nonsense. He writes it as, they have their own writing system. He calls it a hardcore PG, which is what a writer. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's that is the uh, basically that's the result of my deep dive into mostly what people on the internet think about Pinocchio. Uh, inspired by this film, if I ever find a time machine, I'm going to travel back in time and wobble Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alistair. <laughs> Obviously, totally ludicrous that your nose would grow when you tell a lie, and that would be obvious to people. Um, so. Anyway, this day in 1497 was Shrove Tuesday, and in Florence, supporters of a Dominican friar called Girolamo Savonarola collected and burned thousands of objects in a Fallo delle Vanita, or Bonfire of the Vanities. A burning of objects condemned by authorities as sinful, a practice he had initiated at carnival time two years earlier. Now, supporters of Savonarola known as Pianoni, or weepers, went from house to house persuading inhabitants to surrender worldly possessions to which they were particularly attached. Objects destroyed included irreplaceable manuscripts, sculptures, paintings and tapestries, as well as cosmetics, mirrors, musical instruments and books of divination, astrology and magic. They included the works of Ovid, Propertius, Dante and Boccaccio, even major contemporary artists such as Sandro Botticelli, and Lorenzo de Credi agreed to have some of their own works burned. Lorenzo de Medici had invited Savonarola to work in Florence in 1490. Savonarola's power and influence grew until he became the effective ruler of Florence with a guard of soldiers following him around everywhere. He became one of the foremost enemies of the Medici house and helped to bring about <coughs> their downfall in 1494. However, his foreign policy of seeking an alliance with France made him unpopular and his denunciation of papal wickedness led to charges of heresy and sedition, and Pope Alexander VI excommunicated him on the 13th of May, 1497. Question of the panel, how did he die? Don't expect you to know the answer. He was executed, 23rd of May, 1498, hung on a cross and burned to death. <laughs> he was burned to death, so that, how appropriate was that? His death... When you, when you said how did he die... We really got the impression it's going to be a fun one. Yes, no. <laughs> like being rolled yeah, from side to side or something. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. no, no. He, um, he got wobbled. Wobbled, <laughs> that was the word. Wobbled, yes. Severely wobbled, he was. His death occurred in the Piazza delle Signoria, the same square where he'd held his own bonfires. 
And the day after his execution, the papal authorities commanded that anyone in possession of his writings had four days to turn them over to a papal agent to be destroyed. Anyone who failed to do so faced excommunication. So the papacy effectively fought fire with fire. On to our second guest. So this is Ben Ennis. Ben is a regular guest. He's appeared in our shows in Buxton last July and our first ever show, which was in Wigston's house this time last year. Ben is a resident of Leicester and works at the city's historic Guildhall. He's also once had a job as a mascot for Leicester City. Coincidentally, after he left that job, Leicester had an incredible revival. <laughs> <laughs> Going on to win the English Premier League in the 2015-16 season. So good work, Ben. Good work. Uh, over to you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. um, by, by mascot, I wasn't one of the kids that just ran out onto the pitch. I was still with the fox. Uh, but um, it was a particularly nice introduction, especially because the last time I was introduced on stage, uh, uh, the Quampere described me as a slightly tubby Mozart, um, <laughs> which I, I, I do um, understand isn't the best joke for a podcast, but just to explain, I have the hair, uh, slightly of Samuel Pepys from the 17th century, so uh, working at the Guildhall, I think that would make me a very good candidate for a ghost, and I'd like to haunt the Guildhall. Um, but people would be very confused because of the hair, and then they'd see that I was wearing Nike shocks. Uh, so, does he exist? If either of us became ghosts, we'd be confusing people. We would. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, thank you for that introduction. Yeah, I was filled with a fox between 2002 and 2004. I always used to smile for photographs. <laughs> <laughs> and that there was three rules as well to be called the fox. The first rule was that Philbrick is a mute, so I wasn't allowed to speak when I was in the costume. Uh, the second rule was that Philbrick must uh, make no obscene gestures with his tail. Because <laughs> 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 it looks going around. And the third rule was that Philbrick the fox has no opinion either way whatsoever on fox hunting. <laughs> Which is incidentally very hard to express an opinion when you're mute. So it's a temporary balance. Uh, but for my topic, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, x-rays, because it was on this day in 1896 that the first medical x-ray was used in Canada. Um, x-rays had been discovered approximately a year previously in 1895 by Wilhelm Rundgren. Um, his discovery led uh, to inventor Edison to pass x-rays through crystals to make them fluoresce inside a glass ball. Um, it was a real light bulb moment. <laughs> Thank you, literally. Uh, up until then, uh, when people had an idea, it was a gas lamp that would appear ahead. Um, this was a completely uh, unpredicted result, uh, which is particularly ironic as it occurred within a crystal ball. Um, <laughs> It was, the most, uh, it was the most unlikely prediction since Nostradamus had foretold the birth of his own grandmother. And uh, another, <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you just a moment. Uh, and another unlikely historical event is that Christopher ran inside the hospital he was born in. Um, um, <laughs> so um, Rundgren uh, graduated from uh, Zurich Poly. Uh, which was a bit like the Montfort, if you remember when that was a, a poly. Um, he was a genius with a photographic memory, uh, although it did take a while to develop. <laughs> oh, don't groan, come on. Ask if you haven't even paid yet. <laughs> um, he actually discovered x-rays uh, whilst taking a selfie. 
Um, so the bare bones of this idea were visible uh, on reflection. Um, does my liver look big in this? Um, he was tutored by the eminent uh, Professor August Kunt. Uh, so he was obviously bullied at school because of his name, uh, August. Uh, they called him August after July. <laughs> and uh, he had three sisters. He had uh, yeah, April, May, and June. Uh, orphans. Um, so um, just this with a K. Just to let you know that uh, most of this is it is historically accurate. Most of this, but there are some bits that I have made up. Um, <laughs> I'll just let you decide which bits. So, um, but anyway, all of this uh, led uh, to this day in history. Uh, the 7th of February, 1896, uh, when Professor John Cox passed X-ray radiation uh, through a person for the first time uh, in order to find a bullet lodged in a man's leg. Um, what the history books don't tell us is that Professor John Cox was the person that shot him. <laughs> uh, so, and just as some asides, uh, if you think uh, nowadays, uh, when you go for an x-ray, uh, I'm assuming like everyone, has anyone not been for an x-ray? There's one person in the peak of their health, at the back of the room, who put their hand up. Um, but everyone else will know that when you go uh, to the radiography department, uh, they, they dive behind some kind of concrete bunker, don't they? Like kind of, and they, they, you hear them on the tannoy say, perfectly safe. <laughs> um, and then they pass this high energy radiation through you. Um, it's actually going through through you at 0.2 of a millisecond. Um, so it's not health and safety gone mad, don't worry. Um, but um, the early x-rays, like the one that I've mentioned, um, the x-rays would pass through the person to get the image for up to 40 minutes. Yeah, to take the image. Um, now that's, that's health and safety gone awry, <laughs> which I think is a, a a phrase that I'd like to bring into the common parlance, actually, because <laughs> uh, it's the opposite of health and safety gone mad. It's gone awry. Um, so it took them a little while to twig on that the people that were already ill were then dying pretty quick after they got x-rayed, and then they realised that, um, especially when the, um, the inventors, the physicists, they started dropping off as well, uh, they realised that these x-rays were pretty dangerous. Uh, thankfully, they've tightened things up since then. Um, <laughs> So, anyway, uh, I'll just finish by saying, uh, always trust your radiologist, um, but never lie to them as they can see right through you. <laughs> uh, but never date one um, as they will see other people behind your back. <laughs> uh, and if you do use x-ray specs, always have supervision. Uh, I'll finish on what I call the best joke. Um, all built up to that one joke. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's um, a sort of very potted history of the discovery and um, not the invention, but they were there already, um, but the harnessing of X-ray technology. Thank you, Ben Ernest. <laughs> At a quarter to four in the afternoon on the 7th of February, 1845, the overseeing attendant left the room in the British Museum in which the Portland vase was held. The visitor then took a large lump of basalt, which was part of a monument from the ruins of Persopolis, and threw it on top of the thick glass case holding the vase. 
and both the case and the vase were smashed to pieces. The vase had been a Roman two-handled violet-blue glass amphora with white cameo glass reliefs depicting two scenes from the marriage of Peleus and Thetis from Greek mythology, each relief individually made from a mould and applied by hand. The vase was probably commissioned for a member of the family of the Emperor Augustus and made sometime between AD 1 and 25. The vase was called the Portland vase as it had been on loan to the museum from the Duke of Portland. The vase had survived the sack of Rome by the Vandals in 455 and remained intact for nearly two millennia. The modern day Vandal was William Mulcahy, a scenic painter from Dublin and known as William Lloyd. He had apparently been drinking all the previous week. He was arrested and charged with the crime of willful damage, but his lawyer pointed out that by law, his clients could not be charged for the destruction of any object worth more than five pounds. So Mulcahy was convicted of the destruction of the glass case. He was ordered to pay a fine of three pounds, about 250 pounds in today's money, or spend two months in prison. He had no money, but an unnamed benefactor bought him out of the prison sentence. Now, an art lover of the period wrote in the London Times that Mulcahy needed a severe public flagellation. And the Duke of Portland decided, though, not to pursue a civil action as he didn't want his family to suffer. Now, craftsman John Doubleday attempted to reconstruct the vase from its 200 fragments in 1845. It wasn't as easy as doing a 200-piece jigsaw as he found he had 37 small pieces left over. And these were stored in a box, which for a while was mislaid and forgotten about. But two further restorations in 1948 and in the 1980s have left the vase looking almost as good as new, hence the photograph there. On to our third guest, this is Chris Phillips. Now Chris tells me he's a retired fashion designer. Now I think that means a one-time fashion designer as opposed to one with new tyres. <laughs> he's also a founder member of E. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, Ifab Pedwar, the Welsh action group whose mission is to prove that the Beatles were from Wales. Now, I've done some research into this myself, and it seems more than a coincidence that the Beatles almost had hits with Eight Days a Leak. Oh. <laughs> it gets worse. Uh, Cymru together. I am my steak man. And Lucy in Menai with Dine. <laughs> You're, you're forgetting Get Back. Yes. Over to you, Chris. I'm Diane. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. Shurikian uh, uh, people of Leicester. I feel a bit of an interloper tonight. Um, I've been reliably informed by the, uh, the historian, uh, Richard Buckby, that the last uh, person to uh, uh, finish off Richard III was indeed a Welshman. Um, not a very good response there, see. <laughs> uh, I, I do apologise for, for that. Um, my subject tonight is um, uh, on the 7th of February in 2016, uh, the uh, cosmonaut, um, uh, Tim Peakes, who is half Welsh, was 55 days into his... Uh, um, it's a, it was a mission. And... Uh, uh, an expedition uh, on his uh, circumnavigation of, of the Earth. And uh, he conducted um, uh, a podcast uh, live to a school in London and also a school in Cardiff. 
Now the uh, the expedition was called 46, 46 stroke 47. Now those numbers are very significant and uh, basically it was the amount of times that he was sick um, whilst travelling in the Soyuz uh, rocket which uh, took him to the International Space Station. Uh, somebody obviously lost count so they weren't <laughs> sure whether it was 46 or whether it was 47, you see. So they just said basically, all right, we'll just score 46 to score 47. <laughs> Who's counting? That's what they said. Um, as, as tradition had it, um, Tim Peaks was allowed to choose three songs. Uh, so when uh, the Soyuz uh, rocket docked with the International Space Station, um, they, they played his songs uh, while he was uh, entering um, the International Space Station. And Tim's, uh, I won't play them for you tonight, obviously, but uh, the three songs that Tim picked, uh, the first one was uh, uh, Panic by the Smiths. Um, <laughs> the, the, the second one was um, Crash and Burn by Bass Hunter. <laughs> now, now, the third one, the, the, he had a bit of a choice. He wasn't sure whether it was going to be uh, It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. <laughs> or Sick Again by uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, he went with Sick Again uh, because apparently he was. <laughs> so so the, 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 the idea, of, uh, he, he initiated the podcast. He said, I'd like to pick a school from Cardiff. Uh, I think it was one, it was Cathay's grammar school uh, that he attended. And uh, also there was a school in, in London. And um, he was taking questions from the pupils. And the first question came from uh, the London school. And a, a young student said, uh, astronaut, can we call you astronaut peak? And he said, no, I'm not an astronaut. I'm a cosmonaut. She said, Cosmonaut Peak, can you please tell us, were you allowed to take any um, luxury items with you? He said, uh, I said, yes, we were allowed to take one luxury item. Now, when I left uh, Great Britain, before we travelled uh, and to, to, to meet up with the, the Soyuz rocket, I went to Waitrose. And um, I noticed, I have a bit of a penchant for uh, Welsh cakes. And on the shelf, I noticed there were some Welsh cakes. And um, he, he explained that um, he, he, he thought, well, I'll take those with me. Uh, it's, it's a reminder of, of, of half of my obvious culture. And uh, he, he, he said, I picked the packet up. And I looked at it, and it was a very distinct packet. It had a, a dragon on the front. And, and there was a, 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 a woman dressed in a very tall black hat and a, and a, and a, a shawl. And a skirt. It reminded me of uh, of my grandmother. He said. He, he looked at the packet and he noticed they they were describing how this the recipe. They said it was a it was it was a Celtic recipe, passed down by the the Druids, which wasn't very convincing for him, I don't think. And then he said the reason why it wasn't convincing because when he turned the packet over and had a look at where the Welsh cakes were made, he said they were made in Twickenham. <laughs> <laughs> now, Straight, straight away, a question then came in from 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 the, the school in Cardiff and Cathays, and uh, a young a young boy said, uh, "Cosmonaut Peak. Was it, po is it possible 
for you to see any significant landmarks while you are um, on, your, on your, your sort of orbit of the Earth. You know, can you see anything of any significance uh, on Earth from out in space? And Tim said, uh, oh yes, of course. He said, he said uh, uh, Mr. Peak, is it possible, did you see the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff? And Tim said, yes, of course. He said, I, I did. I, I, I actually put it in my diary. He said, uh, 82,000 seats. Uh, the roof was open. He said, I didn't count them all, obviously. He said, uh, he said it was fascinating. He said, um, and straight away, the school in London, a young boy shouted, Mr. Peaks, he said, did you see the, uh, the, the home of, not only international rugby, did you see the home of, um, of, uh, of English rugby? Twickenham. Tim said, uh, I'm sorry, but you are breaking up. <laughs> you are breaking up a little bit. Um, he said, uh, no, unfortunately, I didn't, he said. And the, the student said, why, why was that? Um, he said, well, there was a significantly large Welsh cake factory in the way. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't quite make out... Uh, I couldn't quite make that out, you see. <laughs> uh, straight away, there was a, another question came in uh, from, from the school in, in Cardiff. Uh, a, a young uh, uh, girl student, she said, um, Astronaut Peak, did you manage to see Snowdonia? Uh, Snowdonia, it's, 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 uh, it's very significant for Wales. And Tim said, oh yes, of course I did. I, I was looking out for Snowdonia, two and a half thousand feet of Arthurian rock legend. He said, Yes, I, I, I made a note of that in my, my diary as well. Um, and like a shot, um, a student from the London School said, Astronaut Peak. He said, I'm a cosmonaut, actually. He said, <laughs> Sorry. He said did, you, did, you see, uh, did you happen to see Scarfell Pike? He said, I'm very sorry, but you are breaking up. I said, uh, are you able to put maybe your head out of the window so that I can hear you? And they said, uh, well, it's raining here. He said, well, I'm afraid you're going to have to do that because you're breaking up. Um, could you repeat the question, please? And, and he said, uh, are you able to see Scarfell Pike? And he said, um, what is that? He said, Scarfell Pike, don't you know it's the tallest mountain in England? He said, it doesn't sound much like a mountain, does it? <laughs> Sounds more like a, a pike. <laughs> now the children in their school in England, in London, were getting very, very frustrated. And one of them actually said to him, excuse me, cosmonaut Peak, there must be something that you can see when you're orbiting the Earth. That is in England. He said, yes, of course. Stonehenge. Do you know why I can see Stonehenge? He said, don't you? has been pushed all the way from Wales, <laughs> up the M4, across the bridge, to where you see it today. In fact, I noted, and I have looked at this, and apparently it was the very first issue of um, flight tipping. <laughs> not resolved, obviously. But the sun does look very good uh, behind. He said then, uh, then the line went dead from the school in London, and all that could be heard 
was the cheering from the school in Cardiff. <laughs> and um, that, that ends my, uh, my talk on that subject. <laughs> Chris Fuller, thank you. So I'm conscious of how the time's going, so I'm going to skip over my next bit and go straight to Joe, if that's all right, Joe. You, you probably weren't expecting that. But our fourth guest is Joe Mungovin. Joe spent over 20 years carrying out research into the Leicestershire family tree and has become an expert on the history of Victorian Leicester. She's currently working on her second book. The first was called Joseph, the Lifetimes and Places of the Elephant Man, about Joseph Merrick, and we'll come to him uh, quite shortly. Um, during the week of Richard III's reburial, Joe worked as part of the floral team responsible for the displays inside and outside the cathedral, assisting the royal florist Rosemary Hughes. And in April 2018, Joe worked alongside and appeared with Michael Portillo in his new documentary series, Hidden History of Britain, aired on Channel 5. Over to you, Joe. Oh, okay. Um, well, my on this day, the 7th of February 1935, is Monopoly first on sale. Mm, I know. So there are plenty of unlicensed Monopoly games. There are about 1,144, including Metallica Monopoly, ACDC Monopoly, or John Wayne Monopoly. So I presume you've all, always wanted to play the Golden Girls Monopoly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Um, but you can, among many others, have some bizarrely wonderful options. So, we've got the weirdest, funniest and dumbest versions of Monopoly that actually exist. You have Chinese Monopoly. Now, this was a variation of Monopoly by Uncle Wang's board games. The creators made minor changes to, to distance Uncle Wang from the original version. Unfortunately, the designers neglected to keep these changes consistent resulted in a board game that featured no jail, but a set of rules explaining what happens if you land in jail, <laughs> and many other issues. In so doing, they produced an obvious knockoff, making a mockery of the otherwise proud Uncle Wang's name. Then we have Sea Bass Fishing Monopoly. <laughs> okay. um, sometimes it's hard to tell why these things exist and who thought they were a good idea. Uh, maybe fans of Robson Green's Extreme Fishing. I don't know, but I don't have much to say on sea bass fishing monopoly. Another good one, which would have been good when I used to work as a verger at the cathedral, is Biblical Monopoly. It's a biblical version of Monopoly, and the cooperation is the key, and the objective is to build a church rather than destroy your opponents. <laughs> it also features faith cards instead of chants, with instructions such as Recite John chapter 3 verse 16 or lose a turn. <laughs> so can anybody recite John? No, I can't either. So I did actually look it up. I used to read the Bible every day over there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this game originated from the US. The game is perfect for anyone to learn about religion while playing a game that confirms the existence of hell. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got Gayanopoly. This was released by a company known as the Parker Sisters in the 1980s. Their tokens included a jeep, a teddy bear, a blow dryer, a leather cap, handcuffs and stiletto heels. <laughs> Gay Monopoly was dubbed a celebration of gay life. It was also dubbed 
to be a copyright infringement by Parker <laughs> Brothers, <laughs> then the publisher of Monopoly, resulted in a lawsuit and the Parker sisters went out of business. Now, this is probably my favourite. This is Catanopoly. This featured lots and lots of different types of cats to collect as album cats, including obstacles such as dog cat, dog tax. Catanopoly is one of the many animal-themed monopolies. There is Dogonopoly, there's also Horse Lovers Monopoly. The rules are pretty similar to Monopoly itself. The true challenge of these versions is actually trying to find someone to play with you. I would be more interested in the pretty cats, cat hotels, cat houses and the cat cafe, which we're getting in Leicester very soon. We have Ghetto Monopoly with carjackings and references to prostitution <laughs> and playing pieces such as Crack Rock. This is where Toymaker Hasbro drew the line of official Monopoly licensing. Still, despite allegations of racism and a lawsuit, Ghetto Monopoly has a court following. Willing to put morality aside for the game featuring police shakedowns, peep shows and other things that would make rich Uncle Pennybag wince. <laughs> One of the most recent ones is Monopoly for the Millenniums, featuring the tagline, forget real estate, you can't afford it anyway. <laughs> According to, accordingly, players collect experiences rather than properties, including avocados, vegan food and meditation retreats. <laughs> and finally, there was one Monopoly that was released last year in 2019. Leicester Monopoly. <laughs> Which I did actually get for Christmas, so I have to admit, was yes, Leicester. Our iconic clock tower that was built in 1868, that was the first ever traffic island in Leicester, has statues of Simon de Montfort, Thomas White, William Ridston, and Alderman Newton, which is the area you're sitting in now, got Old Kent Road for £60 million. Leicester Cathedral, that houses a King of England, a most notorious, infamous King of England, got Piccadilly for $280. But the Richard III Visitor Site, where you're sitting now, got the prestigious Mayfair, costing $400. So there you are, folks. On the 7th of February, 1935, Monopoly first went on sale. Thank you, Jay. So uh, time is rapidly escaping us. In the second half of the show, we talk about the history of the place where the show is taking place. So today we'll be talking about the history of Leicester. And because there's a second show on Tuesday, uh, I want to focus in, in this show, um, historical people associated with Leicester, and I feel that we've probably only got time for two maximum. So the first one I'm just going to go straight into uh, was comedian Graham Chapman. Now, with Monty Python's Terry Jones death last month, I thought it was appropriate maybe to remember fellow Python Graham Chapman, who died in 1989. So Chapman was born in Leicester in 1941, and it was during a German air raid. And he went on to live at various Leicestershire addresses and attended school in Melton Mowbray. Studied medicine and joined the Cambridge Footlights, where he began writing with John Cleese. Monty Python's Flying Circus was founded around ex-Footlights members and ran from 1969 to 1974 and is widely credited with changing the face of British comedy. 
Chapman played the straight man lead roles in Monty Python and the Holy Grail and The Life of Brian, which is ironic as he was openly homosexual and a strong supporter of gay rights. So uh, I don't know if the panel have uh, uncovered anything about Graham Chapman that they wanted to share. Just give you that opportunity. Done your research, good. Uh, <laughs> um, so here's a couple of quotes from Chapman before we move on. So he's, uh, one was that I quite liked. I think that all good, right-thinking people in this country are sick and tired of being told that all good, right-thinking people in this country are fed up and <coughs> with being told that all good, right-thinking people in this country are fed up with being sick and tired. I'm certainly not, and I'm sick and tired of being told that I am. <laughs> Sorry, I've been stumbling over that one. And a nice little one that I like to hear. Oh, Lord, I assume this is the context of a kind of religious service or something. Oh, Lord, please don't burn us. Don't kill or toast your flock. Don't put us on the barbecue or simmer us in stock. Don't bake or baste or boil us or stir fry us in a wok. <laughs> uh, thanks, Graham. But now, um, I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough wiper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. <laughs> I'm sure we uh, know where that came from. But no, in the time that we have left, I just want to cover Joseph Merrick, the elephant man. Uh, and this is Joe's specialist subject, so I don't feel able to speak on this. I'd rather just hand over to you, Joe, if you maybe just tell us about Joseph, who was, uh, has Leicester connections. Yeah, Thank sure. You. Um, well, I suppose uh, most of you have actually seen the 1980s film, The Elephant Man. Oh, there he is. Most of you? I presume so. It doesn't tell you much about Joseph's life in Leicester. It goes straight to seeing his mother being crushed by an elephant and then being in the freak shows in London and then being rescued by Frederick Treves. Well, Joseph Merrick was born in 1862 on Lee Street in Leicester. His house now, if his house was still there, is directly under the NCP car park. And of course, we know what Leicester likes to build on car parks, <laughs> but it would be right in, in the middle. Um, his father was a warehouseman um, and his mother um, worked in the haberdashery shop and the oil and lamp dealership that the family owned. Um, Joseph's mother died when he was 11 years old and his father remarried. And it was after that Joseph would say that his mother and stepfather, his stepmother and father would beat him and not give him enough food if he didn't make enough money at his job. So he left home and went to live with his uncle Charles and Churchgate. He stayed with his uncle Charles for about two years until he was admitted into the Leicester Union Workhouse, where he stayed for four years. Now, this was a young 17-year-old boy having to walk from Churchgate all the way up to Sparkenhoe Street on a cold winter's night. He stayed there for four years and had um, an operation while he was there to remove a growth out of his mouth. Now, by the end of the four years, he was probably looking at a way to escape. You know, he was, he was young, he was 22. He could either live there and die or go and make a living for himself. So he contacted a local music hall proprietor called Sam Tor, who owned two businesses in, in the town, the Gaiety Palace of Writers, which has been demolished, and the Greenland Public House. And that one actually still stands. Um, they're on Wolf Street South. It's derelict now, but it, it's still there. But the, the Gaiety Palace was um, destroyed. He was probably first exhibited um, in Nottingham, not in Leicester, because many of the shows, such as the Goose Fair, that had plenty of 
exhibitions were well established, you know, P.T. Barnum and Bostock and Wounwells and Lord George Sanger. But once you'd seen Joseph's show, you'd probably think, yeah, great, pay a penny, but why would you want to go again? You know, he's not going to change. So they sent Joseph to London to go work with the very young, probably handsome, and I'm going to have to say that, Tom Norman. And the reason why I'm saying that is I'm actually related to Tom Norman, who is the showman <laughs> who exhibited Joseph in London. We're actually big cousins. Um, and I didn't know that until I started researching my book and did London and suddenly found out, whoa, I'm related to Tom. Um, he stayed with Tom for only two weeks, and like the film shows you that he lived with this showman for years and he was brutally beaten. Tom Norman didn't, he wasn't even an alcoholic. He um, was a member of the Church of England Temperance Society and the National Travellers Union. Um, he stayed with Tom for two years until he travelled with Sam Tor, no, Sam Roper's um, travelling circus. Sam Roper was actually from Leicester um, and near to his death he owned and worked at the Durham Ox pub on Belgrave Gate. Um, he stayed with Sam, Professor Sam Roper for a couple of months until his show was advertised to go to Europe. So Joseph went to Europe. There Joseph said he was robbed and somehow or another he found himself back in London and on the doors of the London Hospital, where he re-met Dr. Frederick Treves, and um, whatever conversation went between them, Joseph got permanent residence at the London Hospital in a place called Bedstead Square. During the years he was at the hospital, he met royalty, he met the princess, Prince and Princess of Wales. They would send him gifts and sign photographs and Christmas cards. Um, he also had other benefactors that um, didn't meet him, but sent him money. One was an actress called Madge Kendall. She arranged for Joseph to go to the theatre, arranged three holidays at the Falsey Hall Estate in Northamptonshire. And she arranged for him to do lots of model making and basket weaving, where he made a beautiful cardboard cutout of a church. This church still exists, and it's at the London Hospital Museum. Joseph stayed at the London Hospital for four years until um, on the 11th of April, 1890, aged only 27, Joseph passed away. He passed away in the afternoon. He didn't lie down to die like, or lie down to sleep like normal people. Um, after he died, his, it was his uncle Charles that came down to identify his body, not his father. After the identification, Joseph's body was handed over to Treves, who stripped his body of flesh, um, boiled his bones twice and bleached them. They are on display at a medical college, privately, I should say. And that was the end of Joseph's story. And there was a rumour that his flesh had been buried. And in April last year, through research, I found the final resting place of Joseph Merrick at the City of London Cemetery in Ilford, where now there is a little brass plaque, it's not marked anymore, there was a little brass plaque to show that Joseph Merrick existed. Which is why I am campaigning and raising money for a statue of Joseph in Leicester, because there is nothing in this city, apart from a little brown plaque at Moat College, which stands on the site of the workhouse, 
that tell you Joseph ever existed and came from this town. So that is why you might have seen it on the news or read it on social media. Um, and I was on breakfast TV last week talking about it. That is why we want to see a statue of Joseph in this town because he represents all the hardships and what everybody is going through who have disability or facial disfigurement. And we think having a statue of Joseph, who is probably the most well-known person with a disability ever to make his own way in this world, should be recognised in his hometown. And that's a talk that usually lasts about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Had to do it in five minutes. So that's Joseph Merrick. Thank you very much. That was lovely. Thank you. So if, if people felt moved to want to find out more or donate to a statue or maybe to hear one of your talks, where, what would be the best? I can advertise links on, on yeah, the It Just So Happened just, website. But yeah, is we've there... got a Just Giving page. So mm. if you wanted to, you could Google Just Giving Joseph Merrick. Um, I've got my own web page, which is www.joannevigamundovin.com. Um, and I'm also, we've also got our own Facebook statue page, Joseph Merrick's statue page, and we're also on Twitter. So, and all the links are all on those social medias. Thank you. Before we finish, just if you'd just like to thank the guests that are still here. Oh, no, Alistair has to rush off and do his show very shortly. So, please thank Alistair Beckett <coughs> King, Ben Ennis, Chris Phillips, and Tony Dolan. I'd like to thank the Leicester Comedy Festival for hosting this show and uh, King Richard III Centre also. And a final on this day for you, the final words come from author Charles Dickens, who was born on this day in 1812. Now, the show might have provided us with the best of times and the worst of times, uh, but Dickens' writing also exhorts us to reflect upon your present blessings, of which every man has many, not on your past misfortunes, of which all men have some. And as we end the show, do I hear someone saying, please, sir, I want some more? <laughs> no. But Dickens might remind us that life is made of ever so many partings welded together. And the final saying, the pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. Thank you and good night.